Well, good morning. I hope everyone's doing well. I'm trying to get my, I accidentally, I've been trying to leave my phone on so I can operate the, the slides. So last couple of weeks, I've kind of messed up that. So today I had success first hour and looks like so far this morning as well. So uh, awesome. We started a series last week called, So You Want to Go Back. And the idea behind it is based out of Hebrews, and we'll be in Hebrews chapter 9 if you want to turn there this morning. It's based out of Hebrews, and the picture in Hebrews was, is that Christian believers, Jewish believers, many of them, Hebrews, were going back to Judaism, and they were leaving the faith, the Christian faith, and going back to this old system. And the author of Hebrews is writing to them, uh, he's explaining to them that that they need to hold to their confession of hope. They need to hold on to their faith. Um, that going back, there's no more sacrifice for them. There's no, more, there's no more salvation if it's not in Christ. And we looked last week as well. We looked at Israel kind of out in the wilderness. And I kind of pulled this theme from uh, uh, Keith Green's song way back when. So you want to go back to Egypt. And that whole idea of Israel going back. Wanting to go back to Egypt because there their stomachs would be full rather than go to the promise that God had them. And we saw that in that situation, they were still in God's plan. And that oftentimes our circumstances aren't a good indicator of God's plans for us, is it? And the same true today. We're living in a time where it just seems like chaos is all around us, right? And there's so many people that are doubting their faith. They're, they're beginning to change their view. We, I think Greg and I have both referred to the survey from Barnum Research and how many people just within the evangelicals seeing not the scriptures to be inerrant or seeing uh, basically that humans or people are good and not, not evil. 75% blew me away. If we're good, then why do we need Jesus, right? If we can earn our own righteousness, why would we need Jesus? And the reality is the author of Hebrews begins to address some of these kinds of things. He's talking to these believers and he talks about how God had spoken in many different ways in the past, but now has spoken to us in his son, Jesus, who was superior or greater than the prophets. In the Jewish culture at the time, when they, wanted, when they were hearing from God, it came through a prophet. And so Jesus was greater than the prophets. And the author goes on, he's greater than the angels. Remember the angels, Gabriel, who came and told Mary about the child that she had. And we see in the other passages where angels had spoken and gave them the message of God, were, were messengers of God. And Jesus is greater than them. Jesus is greater than Moses. I mean, Moses, the one who, who, who saw God or the backside of God and, and he sees God write out the commandments and he walks down and he's glowing from the glory of God. And Jesus greater than Moses, even though God has spoken through him. And he goes on, and the way that humanity would speak to God, Israel would speak to God, is through priest. And the author of Hebrews went on, and he continued on, and he described how Christ's priesthood was greater than Aaron's and the priesthood. He was in the order of Melchizedek, which we didn't know much about, other than he's a king and priest, which is so vital to the eternal redemption that we have in Christ because Jesus is not just the one who sufficiently supplied the sacrifice and the offering to, to deal with our sins, but he's also the one who's going to make sure that it happens. And so the author of Hebrews gets to chapter 9, where we're at today, 
And he kind of goes back into the Old Testament and he uses the tabernacle. In the mind of their day, uh, when he was writing, most of the people understood the tabernacle. Now, when you think of the tabernacle, you're thinking the Old Testament tabernacle. When they, when they traveled, they used tents or uh, clothing that they made out of goat's, goat hair that they would drape over as God described to Moses how to build this exactly as he was supposed to, that he got that from Mount Sinai. And the author uses 10 verses here in chapter 9 to kind of describe that tabernacle. Yet there's 50 chapters in the Old Testament devoted to, to, to the tabernacle. I don't think we're going to go through all 50 chapters. But the idea of what the author is bringing out is he's setting out this, this idea, this course of the tabernacle. And this is the t- way in which Israel, way in which humanity was able to meet with God was through this, this system in which God had given to them. And the author of Hebrews is showing how these things were copies. They were, they were intended to teach us and, and to show us this path, this way to God. And the author of Hebrews uses that. In fact, it's kind of like when, I was a, when my kids were little, we loved, uh, we loved uh, watching the C.S. Lewis uh, Carno, Carno, Chronicles of Narnia videos. And we read the books and, and I always loved that scene in the movie where these kind of these ordinary English children go into this room. They find the wardrobe because they're playing hide and seek. And as they kind of work their way through the clothing, next thing you know, they kind of experience this whole new world, right? And it's kind of like that with this. When you begin to look at the tabernacle and you kind of dive a little bit deeper in it, what God was trying to teach Israel and show Israel in the copies of the things of heaven and the copy of the things that were to come, it's the same idea. You kind of, as you work your way through that, if you look, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 9, I want to just read the first five verses as we get started here. It says, now even the first covenant, and you're going to hear these terms, old covenant, and new covenant, or first covenant and second covenant. And these are reference in which God made covenant with Israel, in which they were to approach through the tabernacle and how they were addressed them. And then the new covenant, the covenant which we're under, the church age, whereby God has now placed his spirit in us when we believe in Christ, his spirit dwells within us. In the Old Testament, that did not happen. And so he says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for the tent was prepared the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me for the for a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence it is called the holy place behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place sometimes uh, we interpret this as holy of holies you've heard that if you've heard that term having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tab- tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. He's not saying here we can't talk about him. He's just saying there's so much detail, 50 chapters in the Old Testament, we're not going to be able to cover all of what the author is trying to trying to say here so when we talk about this first covenant or the old covenant there's a couple of things that didn't go nope not that one I'm sorry well we'll just stay there oh here we go all right (laughs) so sorry but this it worked fine first hour and here I am the second hour it's not working again it's all that spiritual battle um anyway old covenant 
there's three things that we're looking at that he talks about. And you see them in that first verse of chapter 9 when he says, he says, the first covenant had uh, regulations. There were regulations for worship. And there was an earthly place for, for holiness. Okay? And it's interesting there, if you look at it, it says an earthly place of holiness. He doesn't say an earthly place of God. He's talking about holiness. Because I don't think we really understand holiness. I don't think we really understand what is holy. What we have a tendency to do is what? To bring down that which is good or holy to a level where we understand it. And God is setting a standard here of holiness. When, we were, when I was a kid, my parents had a jewelry business. And you all have heard me share about it in the past. But I always remember this guy walking in that one day. And he's talking about this diamond. And he kind of used the term perfect diamond. And I remember challenging him, what does that mean? Because what, an, what a uh, jeweler does is he takes that diamond or a diamond cutter and he begins to cut angles on that diamond. And what he's doing is he's, is he's trying to direct the light so when it goes into the diamond, it comes out with different kinds of color. color. And I remember asking him about that and he said, well, there's no such thing as a perfect diamond. He said, a good, a good diamond cutter knows how to cut the diamond in such a way as to hide the faults of the diamond as well. Well, that isn't the case with holiness. It isn't like God has put out this persona that we say, okay, he's holy and he's holy of holies and, and all. But inside of him somewhere, there's, there's, there's unholiness. He is purely holy. And it creates some of the problems that we have as humans in meeting with a holy God. And so what, so what the author of Hebrews does, he goes back to that first uh, first. Uh, uh, covenant and the tabernacle with the with the tabernacle and you look I got two layouts here I got one trying to give you a picture you can see where it's layers here of of the covering they use goat hair to make this covering kind of a tent like and they had it broken up and when you think about there's basically three it's it's a lot more deep than this I'm just trying to be general there's three different areas you have out here in these outer courts sometimes a lot of times the brazen altar is here where they would prepare the sacrifice and then they would come into this first area, and this is an area where they would, on a regular basis, bring, bring uh, certain sacrifices and so forth. You, you remember they talked about the lampstand, the, the table with the, with the uh, bread of presence as well. And then you go into this third section, and this is called Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. This is where God was. And when you talked about the tabernacle in the Old Testament to Israel... The tabernacle represented the presence of God, that God was in their midst. Remember when we went through the study on Haggai and Haggai was challenging the people because God's house lays in shambles and they're building their own homes? The reason that was such a big deal is because the temple was being, not being built and that was a representation of God being present in their midst. And they were so busy living their lives that they ignored the presence of God. Now today, we, when we believe in Christ, Christ indwells us. And we rest in that indwelling and by faith, we walk by faith in that indwelling of the Spirit of God who indwells us. But in the Old Testament, this earthly, this earthly uh, uh, sanctuary was so important because that's where Israel would meet with God and, and, and humanity. And <laughs> when you think about it, it wasn't that long before that when we read about in the garden, remember the garden? How did God meet with Adam and how did he meet with Eve? In the dew of the morning, 
He walked with them. And I think a lot of times we don't understand the intensity of what sin does and how it separates. And God had to expel humanity out of the garden. He had to expel Adam and Eve out of the garden because sin separates. In fact, he goes on and he says, in verse 6, he says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their rituals, but in the second, in, into the second only, the high priest goes, but once a year, and not without blood, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, I want you to think about that for a second, because weekly they come, in, they come into this area, but once a year they come here, and this is where God was. And they came by a high priest. Now, when we talk about sin, nobody likes to talk about the ugliness of sin. Nobody does. And the reality, if there was no sin, we wouldn't be meeting this morning. If there was no sin, there would be no need for Christ. If there was no sin, there would be no need for reconciliation with God. But because of the ugliness of sin, it created the situation because it created separation. That's what sin does. It separates, it destroys. I, I bet every person in this room this morning might think of somebody that has hurt you and you, you hold them afar, right? You hold them afar. Many of you don't know me or didn't know me uh, before I knew Christ. When I was a young man, well, before I came to Christ, man, I took care of things myself. If you hurt me, I hurt you. If you did me wrong, I did you wrong. If you did something to me, I hunt you down and find you. And one of the things that happened is that as Christ came into my life, my life began to change. It began to change in a way that was, that was unbelievable. When I was 17 years old, not long after I'd started, really began to pursue Christ and how he looked in my life. And you've, many of you have heard me share before, those men that walked in that day, two men walked into my parents' jewelry store and robbed our jewelry store. They walked out that day with 115000 wholesale, which in 78 was a lot of money, 78, 79. That was a lot of money. But it wasn't the money that hurt. It was the days that followed when my mom had a nervous breakdown. And then I, and then I saw that my mom and dad's relationship began to crumble. And I don't know how many times I moved my mom out of the house because of their relationship and everything. And, and everything that I wanted in my very being wanted to, to hurt, right? But I had just started following Christ. And I remember thinking through that process that these men that came into that building Christ died for and thinking about what sin does and how sin separates and it creates creates bitterness because if you let sin run right a bitter person becomes more bitter more angry it can take a kind person and make them bitter if they allow bitterness to set in their hearts unforgiveness will turn a person from what God has intended and change them into something else that's what sin does and I don't think we always understand the full impact of sin. And I remember thinking about those guys, and if I could only get a hold of those guys, 
And yet then I began to remember reading some things in God's word as he was changing my life and realizing that Jesus died for them. And I still remember as God began to whittle away at my life, praying that those men one day I would see in heaven that they would find Christ. And it was the most difficult thing for me to pray. Because I wanted, I wanted evil. I wanted destruction. And God changed something in my heart. And I've fallen many times since, but he continues to change, right? That's what God does. Because we don't understand the full implications of what sin does and how it separates and destroys the relationship. When God found sin in the garden, it was a horrid situation. A holy God, because a God of holiness, we really don't understand. You're not going to find anything on earth that exemplifies what holiness is until you see the face of God. And the holiness of God, it was such, so horrid, we don't understand that, that he cast out those he loved out of the garden, out of holiness. But God loving us and caring about us, he set up the tabernacle so that he could still be in the midst of his people. And he, and he wanted them to understand and know what does it mean? What does it take to meet with a God? To understand the full grips of what sin does. You see, because the high priest, when he went in, he went in with blood, not his own, but the blood of bulls and goats. Because the scriptures tells us that in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God speaking, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. In other words, to make right. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Because, because life is in the blood, atonement is made by the blood. So the high priest did not enter into the holies. You go back to the temple for me real quick. The high priest did not enter into this area without blood. In fact, the tradition tells us and, and all that they would put a rope around the ankle of the priest because if God didn't accept the sacrifice, that's the only way they could get him out. He had bells at the bottom of his robe and as he moved around, they would hear the bells and all of Israel would be outside this tabernacle. They'd be surrounding it. And I, I guarantee you there was a hush listening for the bells because they understood the holiness of God, but they also by offering these sacrifices, understood that rebellion and sin required death. What does the scriptures teach us? For the wages of sin is what? Is death. It's a painful thing. It's a painful process. But that was still the whole point. For humanity to understand the full grips of what depravity had brought on humanity. To understand the full consequences of their own iniquity. And that their iniquity could not allow them into the presence of God. That the sin led to death. And it was a very serious thing. We're not to take these things lightly. We're not to take lightly sin and rebellion. We're not to take them lightly because they destroy and they separate. And God offered, offered this, this method, this tabernacle, so that he could be in the midst of his, his people, that he could be there. And it took an innocent, unblemished animal to die in their place. 
to remind them of the devastation of their own sin. In fact, he goes on and he says here in verse 8, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the, for the present age. What he's talking about here is this, this, this first section still here. The way into the holy place, the way to meet with God is still not open. But the Holy Spirit is instructing. And the idea behind this is he's looking off that there's a better sacrifice to come. There's a better one to come who could deal with these things. In fact, if you look in John chapter 19, verse 30, we know that that's that's Jesus. It says when Jesus had received the sour wine, he's on the cross here. And he received the sour wine. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We know in Matthew, right after this happened, you know what happened? Go back to the tabernacle. You know what happened? This veil right here that was separating the holy place from the top down ripped. Because now Jesus has provided a once and for all sacrifice. And the author of Hebrews is taking these believers who are now growing growing doubtful in their faith, they're, 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 they're waning in their, in, their, in their trust of God, and he's calling them back because what Jesus had done. One of the things you're gonna hear me say today, and I'll, I'll probably say it again, so if I say it a couple times, forgive me. But I rest today in Jesus. I don't rest on this, on this, on this building or on, the, on a church organization. It's not how many times I read my Bible, how much money I gave in, 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 a church, in the church. It's Jesus. It's Jesus and him alone. There's no other name under heaven by which, which people shall be saved. There's no other name. And we rest in who Christ is. He and he alone. And so when he went to that cross and he gave up his spirit and he rips his veil, he makes open the way to God. In fact, if you go to Matthew or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 21, it says this, for our sake, in my Bible, I have this underlined, for our sake, I love that. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's why that's so important. It allows us to enter into the presence of God. It allows us to worship allows us to, to go on. See, in, their, in the old covenant, in the first covenant, they continue to bring sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. That's what it says there in verse, verse nine. <clears throat> it says, which is symbolic for the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and uh, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. That Reformation literally means the restoring of what is, what is out of line. It's actually looking forward to the new covenant that we have in Christ. Is that picture. Everything they were doing, the regulations, it, it addressed the body, but it didn't address the conscience. It was one of the things that it really changed in my life when I began to pursue Christ and, and seek out what God had to say in his word and to understand this covenant I had with him in Christ, that God began to change me. You would not, uh, well, some of you probably don't like me already, but I mean, still the way I am. But you would not have liked me before I knew Christ. I was not a pleasant person. Well, I probably should quit using those terms. I was an evil person without Christ. 
Christ changed that. Christ is changing me. Christ is working in me. It's not this church. So many times we look at the church and we look at, we get offended and we get hurt and we go and, and we separate. That's not the intent of what God designed for his people. We're in a relationship with Jesus. It is Jesus and him and him alone. So he goes on and he says in verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things, now look at that word, that have come. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, that first covenant's already being done away. Why? Because Christ had come. These good things that were intended have come. In fact, if you will, pull up the new covenant for me, if you will. It says, but Christ, and so when we're talking about new covenant, there's three or four things here that he addresses. First, he secured an eternal redemption for us. He says there in verse 11, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. In other words, Jesus didn't go through the tabernacle, the physical tabernacle. He didn't go through a, a temple that was made by hands. What did he do? Verse 12, but entered once and for all into the holy place. The holy place is where God is. Not by means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by means of his own blood, and underline this, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, that's why the author of Hebrews is saying, you don't have to go back to that system, that judicial system of sacrifice, because Jesus, once and for all, has secured an eternal redemption. It was sufficient. It was enough. He secured that for us, and it's once and for all. In fact, he goes on and he talks about purifying our conscience. He says in verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve a living God? How much more? Will Christ, his, his sacrifice, do than the blood of bulls and goats? In fact, it's interesting here. I, I marked in my Bible, because in verse 13 there, it says that the last part of it, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That's what the first covenant did. It sanctified the flesh. It made them clean enough that they can approach God. But then when Christ came, his purified our conscience. He purified our conscience. And he goes on, purify our conscience from dead works. Go back to the tabernacle for a second, if you will. You see, this whole process of what they went through, it's what they had to physically do in order to enter into the presence of God. What Jesus did by doing it once and for all and providing an eternal redemption, what he did is he eliminated the dead works. It's not how much, you know, sometimes, you know, we get up and we go, well, I read my Bible, I prayed, I, you know, I went to church, I, you know, I, I, I gave money to the church, and yeah, I guess I'm pretty good with God. That's not how you measure that. It's by faith. It's by faith that we depend. Do I do all those things? Yeah, I do all those things. Why? Because they enhance my relationship with God. 
They enhance what I do, but they're not what I depend on. What they're talking about here is that the, the Jewish person was depending on all these works in order to enter into the presence of God. We don't have to depend on works to enter into the presence of God. Jesus has done it once and for all. And we're talking about our position here in Christ. See, these things were a shadow of the flesh, but Christ addressed the conscience. And I also found it interesting, I marked it in my Bible here, if you notice how much in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, Holy Spirit, offer himself without blemish to God. You see the Trinity, you see the Godhead involved. I think sometimes we, we forget how he's involved in all that we do. And Christ did away with those dead works that we might serve the living God. He's not only that, but in verse 15, he's a mediator of the new covenant. Look at verse 15. He says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So not only this, that Christ is the mediator of that new covenant. Now, in the next verses, the next section, I'm not going to read all of it. He begins to talk about a will, like a testament. Um, um, when, when, when someone passes, they have a will, and they have an executor of that will to make sure that it's carried out to all the desire of the person that had passed. And that's why he says right here, uh, since a death has occurred, Jesus died once and for all. But th- what's unique about Jesus isn't just that he died to make this new covenant possible. He's also, because he's living, is the executor, the mediator of that new covenant. He is guaranteeing that those who trust and believe in Christ, those who, who believe in him, he's guaranteeing that eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ will come about, that they will, they will be received. And he goes on and he describes this, and he describes how Moses in the Old Testament um, and, and the old system, how they would sprinkle blood, because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, because sin and rebellion require death. And so he describes this and he's talking about this picture that Christ is securing this for us. And then he picks up in verse 23, as he begins to talk about God, or Christ entering the presence of God. Thus it was necessary for the copies, that's these, the tabernacle, these earthly things, the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, with the blood. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. Than these. And then he says in verse 24, for Christ has not entered, now don't miss the word not, Christ has not entered into holy places made with hands, which are copy of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So what he's saying is, Christ didn't go through a temple, Christ didn't go through a tabernacle, he went straight to heaven. He dealt with it in the presence of God, he represented us on our behalf. That's why that veil was ripped and the Holy of Holies is open. That's why right now you can go into the very presence of God through Jesus Christ. If you receive him into your life, you can go in the very presence of God and call him my father, my God. You don't have to come to me. I don't, I don't, I don't, have, I don't represent you in any way before God. You only come through Christ because he entered once and for all into the presence of God. Now look what he says in verse 25. Not, 
Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. In other words, he's saying, hey, Jesus doesn't keep going before the Father and keep offering himself over and over and over again. He doesn't do that like the high priest did, who every year would have to come back again and cleanse the people. No, Jesus did it once, and it was sufficient. God was well pleased in his son. God was satisfied with his offering. God was satisfied that we might be dressed in his righteousness through faith. And he entered verse 26. He says, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all. That's such an important statement, people. He appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is why Jesus is so important. This is why when I see people walking away from Christianity because they got hurt in the church, I'm like, you're missing it. If you stay in the church long enough, you're gonna get hurt. I'm just telling you that. I've been involved in the church now almost about 40 years ago. I'm telling you, you're gonna get hurt. You're gonna hurt people and people are gonna hurt you. It's gonna happen. But your faith is not in the church. Your faith is in Christ. I'm gonna tell you right now, there's gonna be things that are gonna happen. We just had a week of chaos. We've had some folks in our church who have gone through a horrible week this week. It's been difficult, but their hope, I've seen it, their hope is not in the circumstances, their hope is in Christ. Because it's these things, the circumstances that lead us astray. It's these things that cause us to quit looking at Christ and to look at the things around us. And Christ, who entered once and for all, has secured for us an eternal redemption. He has purified our conscience. We don't have to enter anymore with, with, with a sacrifice. It's already been settled in Christ. It's by faith that we believe that. That's why by faith we approach the kingdom. We approach the Father. It's by faith that we rest in his work, in the work of Jesus, that we would stand in the presence of God and the righteousness of Christ. It is important, dear people of God, not to grow weary following Christ. I don't care what's going on in your world. Don't grow weary of seeking after Christ. Put your faith, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your faith. Do not shrink back. Do not wander away. But rest in the faith of the person of Jesus Christ, who once and for all, once and for all, appeared and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's, that's a... That's a heavy verse. One thing none of us can, can avoid is death, isn't it? We can't avoid it. I've seen people that I love dearly, even this week, who have experienced death. And if you have not Jesus, I fear for them. But in Christ, they find mercy, they find grace, they find eternal redemption. Have you received Christ into your life? Are you here this morning and you've never trusted Christ? You've never placed your faith in Jesus? Today is the day of salvation. You see, we're made ministers of reconciliation. I, I think so many times we get, 
so distracted with all these other things that we do, whether it's, you know, we're supposed to be doing this and we help the poor and we help all, and all those things are good things. They're all important. We need to be doing those things. But our message is a message of reconciliation that for our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might be made in the righteousness of God. You know what he says a couple of verses down after that? He says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Because we know that once you've breathed your last, there is no more hope. There is no more faith. But look what he says in verse 28. He says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Underline that in your Bible. He will appear a second time. That is our confident expectation. That is our hope. That is our certainty that he will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. He's already dealt with it. He already went through the, the, into the presence of God. He already went into the holy places and dressed it once and for all. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Underline that. Are you eagerly waiting after such a chaotic week in our nation? A lot of people have grown weary. I'm waiting on Jesus. I'm looking for Jesus. It's funny in Luke chapter 21, verse 28. It says, as you see these things, talking about the end times, as you see these things taking place, you know what you do? You stand up, Christians, you hold your head up, and you look for your redemption because it's coming. Jesus is our redemption. He secured for us an eternal redemption. He is changing us because he didn't just deal with the flesh. He dealt with the very heart of the person. He dealt with our conscience. He dealt with us that we might be able to walk into the presence of God. He's mediating that. He's going to make sure it gets carried out exactly as it intended, that new covenant we have with him in Christ Jesus. Because he entered into the presence of God once and for all, and he settled it, and he settled it, and he settled it. Amen, amen, amen. He settled it. And until he comes, we eagerly, Wait for him to come again. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I pray this morning for each of us that's here this morning. Maybe there's some here, Father, just after the events of the week have found themselves, Father, and maybe even fearful, uncertain. Father, some are facing sorrow and hurt. Some have had some things have happened in some of our families in the church this week, Father, that has brought great sorrow, great concern. And so, God, I pray that in this moment, we find ourselves resting in Jesus. Father, other people will always let us down. It doesn't matter if they're if they're pastors or lay people, Father, other people will let us down, but our rest is in Jesus. Father, he was greater than the, 
than the prophets. He was greater than the angels. He was greater than Moses. He was greater than the priesthood. Father, he offered once and for all, not through a temple made by the, by the hands of humanity, but Father, into your very presence, he settled once and for all, and he reconciled that which was lost, that which was separated, that which was broken. He reconciled, and he made peace to those who would believe, that would trust in him. Father, he settled once and for all. Father, you demonstrated your love through your son, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And because he lives, we have a certainty that he will mediate, Father, that new covenant. May, Father, we find our knees strengthened today, not, by, not just by, Father, words of encouragement, but by the truth of who Jesus is. May our arms find new strength, Father, as we serve you, not in the dead works of our past, but to serve you, a living God, because of what a living Jesus did for us. Father, when we find ourselves not distracted by all the chaos around us, but when we find ourselves rocks because Jesus is our rock. May we find ourselves, Father, not discouraged, not downtrodden, not growing weary, not quitting, not giving up, because Jesus did not give up. He finished the work set before him and he sat down at the right hand, at your right hand. Finished the work. And Father, we have our hope there. Let us not be distracted. In Jesus' name, amen.